This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. Okay, good morning and a very warm welcome to The Green Siege. This is our second session today and we're delighted that you can join us. My name is Lindsay Cunningham and I'm from NatWest. Um, if you want to chat later, you'll see us on the big purple stand that is um, unmissable, but delighted to be with you here today. Our session today is from the First Movers Coalition and the topic is matching supply and demand for accelerating net zero solutions. So I'm delighted to um, welcome our moderator for today, Nathan Cooper. Nathan is Strategic Partnerships Lead at the World Econo Economic Forum. Nathan, I'm going to hand to you, introduce the panel, and then off we go. Thank you. Amazing. Great. Thanks a lot. Good morning, everyone. Really great to see everybody. Welcome to our esteemed panel, who I'll introduce just in a sec, and welcome to the audience as well. Today, we're at the Innovation Zero conference, and when we normally think about innovation, we really think through how we can push through technologies across the innovation curve, and how successive layers of concessionary finance, usually grant funding from um, governments and from public innovation agencies can push through technologies. But we also see, and we all know the infamous um, valley of death. So what we're trying to do now is um, discuss how not supply-led innovation, but actually demand-led innovation can help us overcome that valley of death and bring uh, low-carbon technologies to scale. This is critical for climate because we know according to analysis that the majority of emission reductions across the hard to abate sectors, which now constitute over a third of global emissions, the majority of those emission reductions need to come from technologies that don't exist at commercial scale. They're not um, on the market and usually there's a green premium um, associated with those technologies compared to the carbon intensive alternative. So I'm really excited about uh, a conversation on demand-led innovation today. We have some great representatives. We have Bruce Adderley, who is the uh, director, the challenge director at Innovate UK across the hard to abate sectors. We have Magali Anderson, who's the chief sustainability and innovation officer at um, Holcim, one of the largest materials companies in the world with 70,000 employees operating in over 70 countries. And we also have Christian Corsite as well, who's the managing director of uh, Volvo UK, and Volvo Trucks is uh, one of the largest trucking companies in the world. In terms of the First Movers Coalition, um, the organization that I represent, we're all about demand-led innovation. So we launched at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, just across the border um, a year and a half ago. And the essence of First Movers Coalition is how do we leverage the demand power of private companies, of uh, industry players across the hard to abate supply chains to really bring through the low carbon technologies that we need to scale, to decarbonize uh, the hard to abate sectors. And now we have 106 early demand signals across seven hard to abate sectors, which represents over 12 billion US dollars in demand, pent up demand for uh, low carbon technologies, which is really great. We're also partnering with 12 government partners, including the UK government, 
I'm really looking forward to partnering with um, innovation, uh, public innovation agencies as well, like Innovate UK. There's some real excitement um, here in the UK in terms of applying demand-led innovation to help industry uh, scale low-carbon technologies. So we're very excited about that. You mentioned that there's really great examples, reasons to be hopeful, and, and signals of change as well when it comes to first movers who are um, putting money where their mouth is and investing in these uh, low-carbon technologies. I wonder, Magli, if I could pass in terms of so you're spearheading uh, the uh, sustainability strategy for a major uh, heavy manufacturing uh, company. You, you exist as a supplier of um, um, heavy materials, but also as a procurer as well. Yeah, I'll pass over to you to talk about your experience as a first, first mover. So good morning, everybody. I'm very happy to be here today. And I was very happy to hear you saying that you are going to put cement and concrete as a first priority. That's great to hear. So we will be back and talk again. But to answer your question, Nathan, yes, just to talk very, very briefly about uh, Holcim. We are the largest building material company in the world outside China. And uh, back in uh, 2020, we did our first net zero commitment. Um, Nathan called us a hard to abate sector. I actually don't like that name much. I much prefer to call it full of opportunities sector because that's what we are. There's so much opportunities to reduce CO2. And the beauty of our sector is actually the majority of our uh, carbon emission comes from our own process, COP1 and COP2. But we still have quite a large amount of emission coming from our COP3. So we decided back in 2020 when we did our net zero commitment validated by SBTI, that we would take a target for scope three, even though at the time, no one in our sector had ever done it. But we transport a lot of products, and uh, we do about 2 billion kilometers of transportation per year. So sometimes I think we are just a major logistic company that is, put, that is do, transporting cements around the world and then making cement just to transport it. So we figured out that... Um, a, a good quarter of our emission was in that trans of scope three emission. Sorry, was in that transportation, and we decided that we had to take a target on it. So we took a target, but then we do everything we do is using an action plan, making sure we can deliver, etc. Making a target is not good enough, and we tried to map who were the truck suppliers that could deliver net zero trucks for us to reach a target. And we realized that uh, there was not many on the market. Forget the price, just availability was not there. So when the FMC started at the COP26 about a year and a half ago, that's why we joined in straight away. And Volvo was the first people we talked to. That was great that we are here together. And it was really the discussion, OK, so I'm committing that by 2030, every third truck I will buy will be net zero. I'm making that commitment. And it's a public commitment. You find it on our website. But I need you, Volvo, or you, Christian, <laughs> to give me those trucks because it's fine of me to commit on that. But if I don't find the trucks, I won't be able to do it. And that is where I think the magic of FMC is working because now I'm giving Volvo the confidence I'm doing it. And it's a pure timing coincidence. But on Monday this week, we actually announced, uh, I believe you, you have to confirm to me that it's the biggest in so far. So we just signed a um, commitment of buying 1,000 net zero trucks to Volvo by 2030. And it is the biggest commitment so far. So, so it's really showed that by having this understanding that we both commit to do it together, he's confident, uh, and I will let you talk, but 
by saying, yes, I will buy your trucks, I guess that helps you to develop your truck. <laughs> well, I will hold you accountable for that. <laughs> Great, thank you. So the biggest procurement of electric trucks ever in big history. Big, big trucks. Big, big, big trucks. We're not talking about zero emission vehicles. Yes, it is one thing, but because um, heavy trucks are still clusters, I like that. I was going to say hard to abate there, but full of opportunities. So the biggest procurement of, of, of heavy trucks. So I actually have a question for all of you or one of you, and then um, maybe we can open up to, to questions in the audience. So when I speak to companies talking about the First Movers Coalition, usually the intuitive response especially from procurement colleagues, is we don't know what the supply is going to be in, in 2030. How could we possibly make that jump and take that perceived risk to commit to procuring something that may not exist by 2030? And we're talking about the really transformational uh, low-carbon solutions and technologies. Electric trucks do exist, but maybe not at the scale that they need to, but across other sectors as well. We don't know. Um, it's very likely that um, there will be good supply, but particularly um, when it comes to emerging economies as well, the supply may not be there. So what would you say to a company that's thinking they're dedicated to climate, um, they want to reduce their um, emissions across their supply chains, but they're not certain, they're not sure um, if the technology will be there for them to make that procurement commitment? Any, any takers on that, please? I'm happy to pick up on that later. Um, I have learned that if you don't reach uh, aim for the stars, you will never reach the moon. Um, we want to go to the moon and beyond. Uh, just like Magali, we make a very strong commitment towards all stakeholders. And that is by 2030, and that is virtually tomorrow, eh? 2030 is virtually tomorrow. 50% of all the trucks that we are producing are going to be zero tailpipe emission. That is an enormous step from today. But we have a firm belief that it will go exponential. It's not going to go, let's say, rhythmic. It's going to go exponential. So in the United Kingdom, I'm sure that we are going to deliver already this year, give and take around 200 electric trucks. Next year, we are aiming 500. And the years following upon that, it's going to go exponential. To reach a 50% global target, Europe will have to contribute 70% to that figure um, to decarbonize 50% by 2020. And that is a commitment. You can read that in everything we publish. And it's a commitment not only to the First Movers Coalition, it is also a commitment towards you guys, because I see a lot of young people in the audience, that we are taking this decarbonization and making that part climate neutral very seriously. And there will be not one silver bullet, sorry, Magali, yeah. there will not be one silver bullet uh, in, in, uh, in, in this solution. You know, you have battery electric vehicles, that's definitely like that. We are already testing hydrogen electric vehicles, so fuel cell electric vehicles. But we believe firmly that no authority should forbid technology in the quest of carbon neutrality. So I am very much advocating not to forbid combustion engines because they are going to be part of the solution, because we believe that we will have combustion engines that are perfectly capable of running out of renewable energies, 
whether it is direct hydrogen or alternative side. So let's not be dogmatic in our approach and let's be very pragmatic in the implementation of it that we do not limit ourselves to particular solutions. Thank you very much. And that actually raises an important point. With the First Movers Coalition, I think what's essential for um, having these early demand commitments is that we're technology agnostic. In First Movers Coalition, we define um, the uh, technology that we want to see in terms of greenhouse gas uh, criteria uh, and abatement potential as well, rather than picking the winners um, and specifying um, specific technologies. So we're really looking at the uh, the greenhouse gas emissions um, aspect. Magli, did you want to come in on this point? Yeah, I wanted to to come in because uh, I mentioned how we were going to buy trucks from Volvo, but we are also part of FMC. We're also a supplier, and uh, we committed to deliver what is called near zero cement or concrete. Sorry, near zero concrete by 2030 because some people. Some other organization committed that by 2030, 10% of the concrete that we'll buy will be near zero. Now, what does it take to do near zero concrete? We actually know very well it takes to do carbon capture, utilization and storage. So it's not like it's a completely crazy technology. It's just a technology that requires now investment, time, contribution from the full value chain, contribution from uh, startups, inventors, etc., etc. But we have put in our target for 2013, our climate report that we issued for the second time this year, the fact that there will be 5 million tons of CO2 captured by 2030 in our operation, which is roughly 7, 8 million tons of cement, which makes concrete after, will be available net zero by 2030. Now, it's great to commit that. And because we committed, we will do it because that's what you have to do when you commit as a big company. And that's also your question about people who are concerned with the technology arrive. Well, company like ours, when we commit to something, we just have no choice at delivering. So you can trust it because if not, our shareholders come and smack us big time. So we can't really play with that. But it's also know that the market is there. Just to put things in perspective for a second, if you build a house, the concrete will be about 5% of the cost of your house. If tomorrow, I and it will be about 30 to 40% of the embodied uh, carbon. If I come and tell you I can make it net zero, are you happy to pay 40% more? The total impact on the cost of your house will be 2%. Uh, I always ask people, how much do you pay to buy organic food instead of non-organic food on a daily basis? So, is that 2% such a huge difference at the end? So that's why I'm a true believer the market can exist. We just need to break this chicken and egg thing, and that's really where FMC has a key role to play. Great. Thanks a lot. And that's actually a very interesting um, statistic as well. I'm ex-upstream oil industry, now academically in the CCS field, in the carbon capture and storage field. So direct air capture is currently more expensive due to the energy costs um, compared to that source capture and transport and, and storage, geological storage I'm, I'm talking about. Um, but it does have the advantage of being less complex in terms of retrofit and transport and, and physical connection, so to speak. Um, so how do you see the balance of that evolving over time and as a solution for the, the hard to abate sectors? So in, in fact, the direct the the flue gas that comes out of my chimney is way more concentrated in carbon than direct air capture. So literally, I think direct air capture, when you look at the numbers, is anywhere between 50 to 100 times more expensive than capturing the flue gas from a chimney. So I had a debate with scientists sometimes where they tell me, yes, but direct air capture removes CO2 when 
um, that is already there when you are just stopping CO2 from coming? And I answered him, well, if for the same price, I can stop one ton to go to the atmosphere, but for the same price, I can, sorry, for the same price of removing one ton from the atmosphere of CO2, I can capture 100 million ton and stopping it from adding, maybe we should do the 100 million ton first. So uh, there is an accounting issue of GHG protocol. So the, the people that put money in DAC cannot divert that money to buy flue gas. But it's actually sad if we could solve that problem, we could really accelerate and go much faster by capturing first the concentrated CO2 gas instead of what's in the atmosphere today. I don't know if that answers your, your question. Great, thank you. Hi, I'm Jet Hussein, working for ABB, Senior Capture Team Lead for Large Projects. Uh, since we are talking about supply and demand, and uh, supply and demand for accelerating the, to, to net zero, and you've mentioned a very good uh, example by saying that uh, if I make your concrete net zero, will you be able to, or are you willing to pay 40% more for that? Which is lead to my questions. What will happen if we see that people are not willing to pay premium price for net zero? Are we going to see some company give up their uh, net zero uh, commitment? Or are we going to see a company commit more actually to, to, to decarbonize their, their production? I Call me optimistic if you want, but uh, I truly believe that there is such a, a will. Uh, sorry, because uh, you, you are taking my example, so I assume you're asking me. But I think there is such a, a movement happening right now that that's why I gave the example of organic food. Who is eating organic food here? Can you raise hands? So you guys go every day and are quite happy to pay 30-40% more for your food that you would normally pay for normal food. Are you crazy? See what I mean? I think that movement is going to happen. So the, the customer demand will be such that people will do it. And again, the impact on the total cost of the house is very little. That's why I gave that example. I don't know if the price of net zero cement will be 40%. I have no idea. It's too early to say. I'm just trying to explain that the impact at the end is small when people are ready to make way more sacrifices right now, right today, to have better, better agricultural practices, for example. So that's why I'm very confident that that movement is happening and it's going to happen, but maybe because... Just, just briefly, and then saying, let's run off exactly what you're saying there. It's certainly in terms of the companies that we're working with in, in, in the innovation space, they're doing, obviously, trials to deliver these new low-decarbonized products right across these sectors. And those who are really first movers on the producer side, talking, you know, in great detail and forming collaborations with their, their suppliers. And I know full well, not going to name names, but definitely trials have been run to produce such materials, so we know how to do it. We also know that they are X percent more expensive at the moment that than current prediction, but the purchases of those goods who were really determined to be first movers, they are saying, actually, we will still work with you right now and we will take at least a certain amount of uh, that production at that higher price because we want it now for our market and our customers are demanding it. So it is happening, definitely. <laughs> It's, uh, it's a question of putting the money there where your mouth is in. Uh, so from our perspective as well, uh, we were part of the founding and the funding partners of the First Movers Coalition because we firmly believe in it. And indeed, uh, the technology is definitely more expensive than we speak today. 
And I'm a bit like Magali. Am I a dreamer or a believer? I am, certainly. But uh, the more that you can optimize your production around carbon neutrality, the more that uh, more cost is leveling out. And uh, we need to fight that momentum. And uh, indeed, we also publish our commitments. And we have an active dialogue also with the shareholder that uh, this doesn't come without sacrifices from everyone in the value chain. But we are committed from our end with the First Movers Coalition to do our fair share and above that fair share in order to reach that uh, zero carbon emission that we want in order to have a higher goal being met. But um, we cannot be blindly looking just at what it is today. We need to be aware that uh, there will be efficiencies, there will be, let's say, a higher volume that you can have the ability to write off new technologies that will level out that one that, you know, your, uh, your uh, tomato uh, that you're uh, buying, um, which is then more sustainable and the other one is leveling out. Thank you. I'm Kate Griffin. I'm a writer. It's another question for Magali, I'm afraid about concrete and cement. I know the industry is doing a lot to reduce its carbon impact and its emissions. I wondered if you also had a strategy for reducing your water use and uh, you know, to cause less water stress uh, as well as reducing carbon emissions. I'm really happy you are asking this question because actually, um, yes, we do. We do a lot. Uh, we were part of the people pushing for Target 15 at the COP15. Uh, in Montreal last year. So having companies making more disclosures. So we have a commitment on water. We have a commitment on water to reduce the water, the fresh water withdrawal from our process use, but also to by 2030, in all the water scarce area, it will, each plant will be uh, net zero in water. So, so that's a commitment, but we also have a commitment on biodiversity based on science and uh, Basically, we developed a biodiversity indicator reporting system. We committed that by 2024, we will have the indicator for all our managed land. And by 2030, that indicator will have improved. And that's how we define our own um, nature positive future. Uh, and we did that with IUCN. But the reason I'm really happy about your question is because yesterday, SBTN, so for people who don't know SBTN, it's like SBTI, but N actually for network, but really for nature, selected 17 companies to be the first people to have their nature strategy validated, and we are one of them. So we are extremely proud of that. Thank you. I didn't pay her for the question. <laughs> Plant a question. No, thank you. Thanks a lot for that. Keith Groisdale from Luxfer. Um, we make gas cylinders, and um, we're in heavily into the hydrogen market. I'm also a member of the Hydrogen Energy Association. Some clever people were telling me yesterday that the uh, the price of uh, the relative price for hydrogen in terms of calorific value um, will be cheaper in 2030 um, or 2032 than diesel. Does the panel see this as being one of the watershed moments for the market? And I mean, in particular, I, I suppose in in terms of cement manufacture, but also in terms of truck. Um, if, if this is indeed true, driven by the massive investment in hydrogen production, uh, what difference is it going to make? Great, thanks. So just to repeat the question from the gentleman, we had a question around, given the uh, actual and expected reduction in the price of green hydrogen, what effects and um, what, what benefits can that give for specific sectors, um, in, including trucks and including other sectors? So the question is on, on green hydrogen. Do you have any thoughts on that? Indeed, uh, when we speak today, the availability 
is is limited of green hydrogen but uh, that 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 is what magali said before it's the chicken or the egg discussion there is a necessity to create green hydrogen in order to have a, a solution for fuel cell electric vehicles and that will not only be for the heavy transport that will also be part uh, also in the car industry that there is going to be a necessity upon that so definitely um, that there is a task for the whole value chain and when i said you know we need an authority that invests in it we need um, from our perspective customers that need to invest in it and we need to invest in it in order to make the, those solutions all workable now from that aspect yes there is a limitation now in the offering but that shouldn't stop us from developing the technology that is required in order to have a decarbonization of our industry now when there is a limitation then there is an opportunity for somebody else to invest in it so that that limitation is not there anymore when uh, the the serial production of that kind of technology will be there in five to six years from now i hope that that is more or less in the direct thank you yeah, I, see, I see a thumbs up there right hi um reva from lek consulting thank you so much for the talk so far um, it's great to see you taking sort of advancements and being first movers, but I'm sure there are challenges associated with that. So what are the sort of main difficulties that you face being a first mover in these hard to abate sectors or full of opportunity sectors? There, there is a, a clear choice to be made. You know, if you say that there is a challenge in taking that direction, there is also a golden opportunity in taking that direction. I think you know that we are all convinced that there is a necessity that things are being done and without further delay. So that uh, we turn it into what we call an opportunity of a lifetime or a golden opportunity, whatever you want to call it, in order, let's say, to be first in. So I don't see it too much as a challenge. It is a challenge, but it is more of an opportunity. And of course, uh, with, with having partnerships like we do with, with Holcim, it gives us the platform to be able, let's say, to from a position of strength to develop the necessity. And it's a really a, a master moment in which we are going to change our industry completely. So it is the biggest change that we have seen since we went from horse and carriages to combustion. So the momentum is now that we move away from the classical combustion to now carbon neutral. From the Volvo perspective, and also Holtzim has the same vision as first mover here, uh, we see it rather as an opportunity than a challenge. So don't see it as a threat. If you are afraid of something, you will lose out. When you see it as an opportunity, I'm sure that you can make a difference. Did you have any? Uh, maybe just one, one word. Fully agreed with everything that was said. But I think it really, the, the main challenge maybe we had is we are in quite conservative sector. So there was a bit of hesitance at being the first movers because you don't know someone has to test the water. And I don't know if you saw in my title this return that I'm part of the group executive. And I think that's where it happened is the fact that when we decided that sustainability was going to be part of the um, strategic thinking of the company, every discussion, etc. So it's no more a side topic. It's entirely embedded in everything we do. And that ironed out every single challenge we had. And the rest is all opportunities that Christian just said. Thank you. And definitely something that we've been hearing from companies as well. This does require a leap of imagination and bold leadership as well and requires the whole executive board and the CEO to be to be brought in to make that um, leap. My name is Michael Tolini. 
creating rapid change requires uh, ecosystem approach. And, and I guess that that is one of the key principles underpinning the first movers coalition. Question is, how does the coalition actually work in terms of uh, choosing particular themes and particular programs? Uh, so is there a kind of a programming platform uh, and also companies, startups and others, how can they get engaged? In, 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 in the various initiatives that uh, are popping up in uh, the First Movers Coalition? Great, uh, good question. Um, so the, the, the First Movers Coalition is very simple theory of change. We looked at the science um, and saw that, as I mentioned, the majority of emissions across the full of opportunity sectors, the hard to abate sectors, need to come from technology that doesn't exist. What's the best way to pull that um, innovation through, leveraging the, the leadership and um, the demand power from, from the private sector? So actually, each and every company um, has set at least one specific early demand signal procurement commitment by 2030 to procure um, near zero emission technologies by 2030. Many companies um, um, that we see on the panel as well have set additional um, commitments. So if there are, if uh, a broader call, if there are any uh, companies that are interested or e ecosystem players, please do reach out to um, myself and we can um, have that conversation. Probably a great one to end on. Um, so thanks everyone for joining. I think the kind of key takeaways is this requires leadership, bold leadership, but there are first movers that really see sustainability as integral to the business strategy and to building future-proof supply chains um, as well. So I'd like to thank the panelists here and really look forward to having this conversation going forward as well with the audience and, and panelists. So thanks a lot, everybody. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.